The Bible talks a lot about money. One basic teaching, which we can conclude from many passages combined, is that we give to those we love. This is not even a distinctly Christian concept, but that the people that we love, we give to. Whether or not you're a Christian, whether or not whatever your religious perspective is, we give to those we love. And we give to those causes that we care about. We give to causes that we love. In other words, our wallet shows our heart. Our wallet shows where our heart is. Our use of money shows where we're headed. It shows our direction. And it even speaks to our eternal trajectory. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This text is not, that text is not to be taken in isolation from the rest of the Bible, which teaches us clearly to save and plan for the future and to store up an inheritance for our, answer, our descendants. The, the Bible says that a, a righteous man will leave his children and grandchildren an inheritance. So this verse is not discounting that and saying that you should not plan for the future. But it is saying that you need to think about your future. You need to think about eternity. In particular, the way it impacts your finances. And further, God is our ultimate example in this. In John 3.16, says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice the very clear connection between God's love and God's giving. That's the point that I've made up front, that the way we use our resources demonstrates what we love. It demonstrates where our heart is. Our context for today's passage and today's message is that the church in Jerusalem faced ongoing financial hardships. The church in Jerusalem, the Jewish church, needed help. This charity project that Paul is participating in is not secular charity or random benevolence. It's not the same thing as stepping out of the Wendy's around 55th Street or so on like 9th Avenue where there's always someone standing there holding the door. They will not let you go in or out without them opening the door and then making a passive-aggressive remark on your way in or out saying, thank you for giving them money when you didn't give them money. This is not that. This is not the cup-shaking situation. Rather, what is being described here is that one part of the body of Christ, the Jerusalem church, is suffering with severe hardship, and other parts of the body of Christ, the Gentile Christians, ranging from Turkey, Greece, and Rome, recognizing their hurt and surrounding them with not just Love or thoughts and prayers or feelings, but love and action to support them in their time of need. James speaks about this. If you see someone in need and you say, be warmed and filled, but you don't do anything to help them, what good is that? Well, it's empty. So if your friend, your brother, your fellow church member comes to you and says, hey, I just lost my job and it's not my fault. I was not being 
in the wrong. I was not poking the bear, as it were. I wasn't intentionally or unintentionally. I wasn't defying my authorities. I just, we just had layoffs. And the fact that I have no money in the bank is also not my own fault, because by the way, that's sinful to not plan for the future. So if you're running today, I just meddle in your business right now. If you have $5 in your bank account, you need to repent of that and change your ways. I've been there. It's not good. You need to have savings so that at the end of the month, when an unexpected bill comes, you're fine. The Bible commands us to be wise, not to be fools. Anyway, back to our text. When you have a brother or sister in need, they have a genuine need. Let's make it simple. They're at your house and they're super hungry and they say, hey, I'm hungry. And you're like, oh, I'll pray for you. No, you need to, to be like, here, let me, get you, let me make you a sandwich. Let me see what I got in the freezer. Let me see what, we've, what, what we can do to help you. Oh, I'll just order something for you so that you can be all right. Or maybe it's a little more dramatic, like, hey, my sugar's low and I need to eat because I'm feeling shaky. You do something about that. You don't just say, well, bless your heart. I'll pray for you. No, you, you actually take a step to show that you truly love them by providing for them in some practical, tangible way. That is a, a small picture of what's going on here. The church in Jerusalem is suffering. Possibly some sort of famine, some sort of horrible, difficult situation. They have genuine needs. It's not their fault. It's not because of their own foolishness or sinful conduct. It's this really bad situation, and they, they, they need help. And so these other Christians are taking up an offering and sending it to them to help them, to provide for them. Uh, one commentator says, each of these additional passages, so this situation is addressed in many passages, which I will uh, reference here in a second. But each of these additional passages mentioned that the contribution was for the poor. The collection was a one-time gift, a voluntary contribution rather than a compulsory offering. One aspect of the gift was to alleviate human suffering, but there were theological motivations as well, namely to solidify and to strengthen the relationship between the Jewish and Gentile portions of the church, thereby contributing to the unity of the church. So in the New Testament church, primarily from, the, from Pentecost going forward, there are two main types of giving that we see in the era of the church, or what dispensationalists would call the church age. In the New Testament church, there are two primary types of giving. There is first the regular giving for the support of the church. By the way, there's no slides, so you can just relax, uh, person who's running the clicker. Um, regular giving for the support of the church. And then secondly, there's special giving. So there's regular giving, and then there's special giving. So the regular giving for the support of the church, well, what's that about? Well, it's to pay its pastor and to provide for ordinary, regular expenses. I have spoken to many people who are kind of critics or skeptics of Christianity or skeptics of the church, and they're like, the church is just about money. And then you're like, well, I mean, right now we're talking to you at your job, your place of employment, and you're going to be getting paid at the end of the week or the month or whatever, uh, you expect to get paid for the services that you're offering to other people. How do you think the church is supposed to function? Like, do we, we have some kind of magic Jesus dollars that, like, we pay our electric bill with something other than cash? No. Pastor can't eat for free. You don't know, just, like, waltz into a restaurant and be like, yo, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. Give me free food. 
That's not how things work. The Bible actually says, pay your pastor. 1 Timothy 9.14 says, In the same way the Lord has commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, Paul is not saying, in, uh, sorry, not 1 Timothy 9, it's 1 Corinthians 9. I'm not sure why I wrote the wrong thing there. But um, it's not that it is sinful for there to be a lay pastor. There can be a lay pastor, but the church's passion, the church's commitment, their heart for their church leadership, for the, the one who preaches the word, should be that they will provide for him and his family. This is one of the reasons not the only, but one of the many reasons why when we were starting this church, we went in a confessional direction because the 1689 London Baptist Confession actually talks about pastoral pay. And that was the driving force in the conflict in our former church. Some were like, no, we shouldn't pay the pastor. And the pastor was like, you need to pay the pastor. And it's not because it's me. It's because it's biblical. But the confession of faith says you got to pay the pastor. Why does the 1689 say that? Well, it says that because it's the Baptist Confession of Faith, which was the first of the free church method coming out away from the state church method, the state church system. In the state church system, which has dominated Europe up to that point, and still even to this day, in the state church system, people didn't even think about paying their pastors because their pastors are employees of the government. They're paid by their tax dollars. Now, we as Americans can very quickly think about potential problems with that, but they in Europe were like, oh, that's great. Well, look at modern Europe and go in those cathedrals today, and you'll see it. it's not so great. This is why one of the basic Baptist distinctives is a separation of church and state. Keep the government out of the church. Keep the government's fingers out of the church's finances. So this is one of the very, very good reforms that were made in the continuous reformation of the church, namely through the English Reformation, which led to the Second London Baptist Confession. The prior confessions of faith didn't even think about pastoral pay because the pastors were on the government payroll. So our first uh, regular, t- regular giving for the support of the church goes to provide for the pastor. I will say it again later, but I want to acknowledge it now while we are here. Um, PBC does a good job of this. You do a good job of taking care of your pastor, and I'm very thankful for that, so thank you. I will say thank you again later because it's in my notes at a later point, but I want to say it now as I think of that. Secondly, special giving for unusual situations of dire need for other Christians. Special giving for unusual situations of dire need for other Christians. What we don't really see in the New Testament, we don't really see in the church taking up collections to distribute to the world at large. Christians aren't really called to redistribute their wealth to non-Christians. One of the most well, the, the most famous pastor of New York City over the last 30 years was very famous for pushing this um, Christians owe as much as possible of their wealth to the less fortunate. And this is just not a biblical concept. It's a Marxist concept. There is not some Christian society-wide project to ensure that the impoverished pagans have the same standard of living as those who follow Jesus. You don't see that in the Bible. 
You don't see that in the New Testament. You don't see that as an instruction for the local church. Hey, make as much money as you can so that you can just like go into the slums and just hand away cash. That's, that's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to preach the gospel, to convert and disciple those people. And then there, there are specific instructions. Those people are actually instructed to work whether or not they're Christians. But when the person is saved and then the process of discipleship begins, it is that man's responsibility to work and to provide for his family. I'm not saying women can't work. We're not worried about that or talking about that right now. But it is a man's particular responsibility to work. And there is something that virtually every man can do regardless of having a little back pain. There are ways, especially in the modern time, where everybody can work. There's something that you can do. So the Christian model is not to, as my lawyer friend says, to just go up on a balcony and throw money off out of baskets and then just like, hey, we're free money, yay. This is, that is not what the Bible instructs us to do. Now, I'm not saying that Christians were uncaring or that we should be uncaring, but this Marxist idea, these ideas that are popular in woke evangelical circles, are foreign to the New Testament, the redistribution of wealth, the idea that you can just be a, I'm not attacking artists here, but like the, the universal basic income so the artists don't have to actually make good art and they can just sit under a tree being creative and bring no value to anyone or anything. That is unbiblical. The free market actually provides this, this barrier that's like, if your stuff is not good, nobody's going to want to pay for it and you need to stop and go do something useful to pay for yourself and your family's bills. So even the Old Testament passages about caring for the poor were a far cry or far removed from the modern welfare state. Families in the Old Testament provided for their own. If you had a broke relative, or as my dad would say, a deadbeat relative, Somebody just refuses to work. They just sit around. They're, they're a welfare worker. They're a government employee who just doesn't do anything. Well, the relatives were the ones who were supposed to take care of them. The relatives are actually the ones who know them. And they're the ones who know that this person doesn't do anything. So when someone would come knocking on your you know, ancient church door in the synagogue, or, or uh, um, let's just call it synagogue, the Old Testament, they're like knocking on your tent door and saying, hey, Pastor, I need some money to pay my bills. And then you, your first question is, well, what has what your, your family done for you? Do you ask them? Do you ask your brother? Do you ask your mom, your dad? Oh, well, they won't give me money. Well, why won't they give you money? Well, because they said I'm lazy. Oh. So you're going to come take money from the synagogue offering that's used to buy the incense that we need to burn on the altar or we need that to pay for the fabric to make the curtains. You're going to take that money that was given to the Lord and use it to pay for your food because you're too busy playing um, some video game. Suddenly my mind went empty. I can't think of a single video game. Really? You're really going to do that? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm planning on doing. I'm on level 3,000. The priest would say, sir, you need to go back home. And work. Now, for the small percentage who could not 
I don't know what the issue would have been, but what it was, was you go and you glean in the fields. The system that was provided for these people, particularly widows, would have been that they would work to to collect from the edges of the fields and to take the grain for food to eat, and then they'd have some they could resell. But they were not given a handout. Rather, they were given a simple job, a way to earn and maintain dignity. Because that's the other part of this whole situation, is that it is, it is emasculating for a man to stand in a soup kitchen line. I say this as a guy who ran a soup kitchen for two years. So if you're like, Andy, you're a hater, I ask how many hundreds of hours you've spent feeding the poor. It is undignified and emasculating to create systems like this. Those who were truly widows had a strict criteria that they had to meet to even qualify for Christian charity. In the New Testament, when you read this, you, re- you realize, like, I'm not sure anybody would qualify for this. The, the widow who has raised up children in the faith and is marked by a life of godliness, but then somehow doesn't have current, there's no, she has no relatives alive today to provide for. Because if she raised those children then they're going to provide for her. But she raised these children in the fear of the Lord and she's walking in godliness and then they died in some sort of natural disaster. Then then we take care of her. But for all the rest of the widows, their families are supposed to take care of them. Um, Today's passage is concerned with this special type of giving, the special giving for unusual circumstances of dire need for other Christians, not the ordinary expenses for the support of the church. So there's special giving for unusual circumstances of sincere need for other Christians, namely the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So imagine there is a hurricane that comes through and wipes out Houston. And for some reason, all the megachurches in Houston can't just like go to their bank accounts, which have eight, nine-figure reserves, and just like pay for themselves. Um, let's say something beyond that has happened. There's like a nuclear war and it's on the other side of the world. And we're like, hey, we could help these people. That's what's going on here with this Jerusalem situation. Looking at verse one, it says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. This collection for the church in Jerusalem is widely mentioned in other passages And I'll give you four of them if you want to write them down. I'm not sure I'll read the entirety of all four, but uh, first is Acts 24, 17. Acts 24, 17. Second, Romans 15, verse 25 through 31. Romans 15, 25 through 31. Third is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And fourth is Galatians 2, 10. And I will reread those as I read them. So if you missed anything, we'll get that now. The first one is Acts 24.17. Acts 24.17 says, Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. So that's Paul referencing that this collection that he's been taking up to bring to the church in Jerusalem. Acts 24.17. The next one, Romans 15.25-31. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. Same word saints is used there that is also used in um, 
the beginning of our, our chapter here, verse, chapter 16, verse 1 now, concerning the collection for the saints. I think you all know that a saint is not uh, like the Catholic saint concept, but it's just the word holy ones that's used to describe any Christian and every Christian. Every Christian is a saint. Every Christian has been sanctified or set apart by God for worship of God. Romans 15, 25, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints from Macedonia and Achaia. I have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Again, they're not just bringing money in baskets to throw it off of balconies, but they're bringing money specifically for the poor in the church in Jerusalem. So they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. By the way, the book of Romans is effectively kind of a long-winded theological support-raising letter where he's writing to the Romans saying, hey, I'm going to come and visit you guys, and I trust that you're going to give me money to go on this missionary journey to take the gospel to Spain. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Uh, The fourth one I'll read now, and then the third one I might, may or may not read, depending on how I'm feeling in about 15 seconds. Galatians 2.10 says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The book of Galatians written to the churches in the region called Galatia. This is one of the regions that Paul visits and is raising funds in that region of the Christians to then... Take back to the Christians in Galatia. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is a two-chapter-long section, and I've decided not to read it because it's very long. You can just write that down and read it on your own time. But this section, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, is extensive and speaks about giving. So the collection for the church in Jerusalem is widely mentioned. In several passages of scripture, the four that I mentioned, Acts 24, 17, Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and Galatians 2, 10. So that's verse 1. Verse 2. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So there are a few principles that we can see here. Not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. Sometimes it's just descriptive. And there are things in this text that I believe are both just descriptive and then stuff that's prescriptive as well. Or principles that we can derive from this, such as the giving is systematic. It's planned. They are setting aside money each week. They're not waiting until they're out of money at the end of the month. Hey, I've got $3 left in my bank. No, they're setting aside money at the beginning of the week. At the beginning of the paycheck, they're saying, we're going to set aside this money for this missions project. And that is a good practice, and I would encourage each of you to do that. This giving is not spur of the moment. Now, Mark, don't worry, we're going to continue taking offerings. But some churches don't take offerings. Instead, they have an offering box, and they say, maybe if we had a building and like our box could be mounted to the wall or something, then you know, revisit that question. But 
some pastors will say, well, no, people give in the offering plate or the offering basket because they didn't plan. And it's like, oh, the offering is here. Let me see what I got. So they pull out their wallet and then they have five bucks. They throw five bucks in. They have 20, they throw 20 in. It's not planned. It's not uh, structured. It's not systematic. It's just an impulsive thing like, oh boy, I need to give something so that Jesus will like me. That's not what we're going for. That's not the aim. By the way, we appreciate that type of giving, but that type of giving doesn't pay the bills. It costs more than $20 per person to do church. We appreciate when people throw in a couple bucks or the, the change that the parent gives to their child to then their child put it in the offering basket to teach them concepts of giving. But some pastors just straight up do, do away with the offering basket completely because they say, well, the giving that the Christian church, that the Bible calls for is a plan, systematic giving, something that is thought about in advance, not something that is a spur of the moment, guilt-motivated thing of like, oh, I got to give something. But instead, it's the type of planning that you would do at home. So you're thinking at home with your checkbook and your budget and your bank account page open. You're like, how much should I give? And then you pray about it and then you plan it. So a lot of churches do that. We offer that to you available through online giving. So the giving that Paul is calling for is systematic, planned in advance, not spur of the moment. Also, this reference to the first day of the week, this points to weekly worship of the church, which gathered on the first day of the week, Sunday. Uh, It seems that his reference to, uh, on the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. It seems, this is not a strong argument, but it seems as though he's referencing an idea of storing up at your own home, setting aside this this special offering. Um, So it's not that the church is necessarily having like a second column in their uh, spreadsheet in their bank account for Paul's offering when he comes, but rather he's saying, you, you collect this on your own so that we're not having to, to deal with this when I come. But the wording is not crystal clear on that, and it's not something to be overly dogmatic about in your interpretation. Verse 3, when I come, whomever you approve by your letter, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. When I come, Whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. We see in this verse, in verse 3, that there are further signs of structure and plannedness, orderliness to the system. Whoever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear or to bring your gift to Jerusalem. So Paul is planning on coming to see these people. They're going to then come forward with the money that they've set aside for Jerusalem, and then the question rises, who is going to take this money to Jerusalem? Well, it's got to be someone who is solid, someone who's credible, someone who's trustworthy, not just some random person. Paul is referring, or requiring that these people would verify who the money carrier would be. You're not just going to hand any old random person a large bag of gold coins, You would give an important task like this to the people who are most trustworthy. I'll remind you of John Benzinger's sermon here from a few months back when he taught us that you don't treat everybody equally. That it is biblical to be discerning and to not treat everybody the same. 
There are people who are trustworthy and there are people who are untrustworthy. And you don't trust the people that are not trustworthy and you do trust the people that are trustworthy. This is biblically required. This is what God expects of us, that we be discerning. Paul was not going to take someone's word for it. Oh, Paul, you can trust me. You can trust me. Trust me. You can trust me. Well, I wouldn't steal from you. I mean, come on. Look at me. I'm a nice guy. I'm trustworthy. Or the wonderfully manipulative approach. Paul, give me the money. How dare you not trust me? I'm really offended that you wouldn't trust me. Even though you've given him no reason to actually trust you. I told you that I'm trustworthy. Well, Paul didn't do that. He, 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 he heads that off before it even starts. Before they even go down that path. He says, no. There's going to be verification required for whoever is the money carrier. So churches are wise to do um, checks and balances, to have systems in place so that um, sketchy stuff doesn't happen to the money. And this is an example that we can derive from this text. The next thing to address in verse 3, when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. And this is in the word gift, The word gift there is actually the word grace. It is the word charis. If you have a friend named charis, that's the word grace. I will send to bear your grace to Jerusalem. This is the the reason for the expression you may have heard in churches about the concept of grace giving. Not tithes and offerings, but grace giving. Not a 10% requirement, but a giving out of response to the grace that you've received. There's a distinction there. This message is not a deep expose on the distinctions between those, but I just want you to know there is a distinction. And some of the biblical support for it comes from this. It comes from even this word. The word for gift is the word grace. These people are giving grace. Not in a saving way. They're not saving the church in Jerusalem from their sins by their gift, but they are saving them from hunger. The Christians in Corinth were instructed to give or to grace the church in Jerusalem. So let me ask you, do you view giving as grace giving? Not something that you have to do or else you're going to get a knock on your door from Mark and Mark's going to be like, hey, so according to our records, (laughs) that's very different from the one who says, hey, I want to give generously because I believe the gospel. I've been forgiven of my sins. And I want other people to hear about that. And I'm not very good at preaching, but I like to share Andy's sermons with my friends online. And I like that that to be able to continue. So I'm going to invest a little extra in this. That's very different from the, oh man, Mark is making his rounds. He's going to come visit me because I know he visits everybody in the church at least twice a year to make sure that they're giving enough. He doesn't, by the way, but just kind of a funny mental image that I, that I thought of. What? You might start that. That's a good idea. Um, 
Someone asked, I'm not going to embarrass you, so don't worry. But someone asked how our building fund was going via uh, email. And um, yeah, <laughs> that's a good idea. Um, yeah, so do you view giving as grace giving? Do you recognize even the gospel ties to your financial giving? God is the example in our giving. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever would... Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We, as Christians, give because he first gave to us. We're not giving in order to get saved or giving in order to, you know. But we're giving out of gratitude, thankfulness in our hearts. Also, We're not always the one giving. Sometimes we're the ones receiving. In salvation, we're 100% the ones receiving. But in terms of this type of giving that we're speaking of today, or this type of grace, sometimes we're on the receiving end from it, and sometimes that makes us very uncomfortable. Especially if you're the more industrious type, you're like, no, I'm going to pay for this myself. Well... You need to receive grace, receive giving from others with humility. Because it's actually a prideful thing to say, no, 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 no. I'm not going to take that from you. You can't pay for my lunch. I refuse. Now, okay, I understand that there can be extremely contentious situations that come up where you have a lunch meeting with somebody who is trying to cause you significant harm and you refuse to allow them to pay for your lunch because you know that they are plotting a church coup. Not that I speak from experience or anything, but in such circumstances, it is acceptable to refuse their grace because you know they're trying to manipulate you with that gift. But let's assume a positive to neutral to positive situation where someone just wants to, they just want to bless you. They just want to take you out for lunch. They just want to pay for your coffee. You know, you're standing over at like Birch Coffee before church with like the rest of the music team and you're all just there and, and you know, Trenton's about to buy his coffee and you're like, oh, I'm going to get some coffee. Trenton, let me buy that for you. And Trenton's like, no, 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 let me buy it. Maybe Trenton would say, thank you. I'm not saying you all have to do that, but if you did it, I'm sure he would say thank you. Daniels? I don't know where that is. Is that nearby? Okay. Yeah, he won't take Birch, but he'll take uh, Daniels' coffee. (laughs) So we receive gifts, we receive grace from others with humility. We say thank you when someone, also when someone praises you, if someone gives you a word of, uh, of compliment, Don't deny it. Don't be like, no, 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 you're too kind. Just say, thank you. Because honestly, what's behind a lot of that is pride. What's behind a lot of the, no, 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 that's not true. Because when you're saying that, you're actually trying to get them to to argue with you more and to inflate it even more. Just say, thank you. Hey, that was a great Thanksgiving dinner you made. That was a great turkey. That was a great whatever. And you just say, well, thank you. It doesn't have to be weird. It doesn't have to be awkward. We don't have to have some kind of super strange and uncomfortable vibe around giving and receiving gifts or grace or kindness or words of appreciation or any of these types of things. If someone does something kind for you, you can just say thank you. I would encourage you, just 
Say thank you. So now, this is the moment of my notes to say thank you to those who give sacrificially to support PBC. I am reminded regularly through all kinds of things that are not even that direct, but I see stuff and I'm reminded of how thankful I am for you guys, for PBC. This week, my reminder of my thankfulness for PBC, particularly those who give to support the work here at PBC, um, I get emails from different ministries and different groups and different organizations that have uh, associations of churches. And there is a, a pastor's association that is doing a Zoom call. Well, two days ago they were doing one um, to help church planters figure out how to coach their people or teach their people to give because the problem is most church plants are not self-supporting and never become self-supporting. So I saw that link to the Zoom call where all these church planters are going to be sitting there on the edges of their seats trying to figure out what the way is to get their church plant to become self-supporting. And I thought, I don't even need that. I don't even need to click on that link. Praise the Lord. Why? Because my church gives. And that's such a blessing. And for those who are new, PBC has always given. It has always given sacrificially. This congregation has always been self-supporting from the first day. And, I, and I'm overwhelmed with that. I'm so thankful. I don't know the specifics, but I do know that the only reason that's a thing, because we're kind of small and we don't actually have all that many members. We have maybe 50 members or so. The reason that's a thing is because some of you give very sacrificially and very generously. And so I say thank you for that. There's something else I wanted to say. It slipped my mind. I will bring it up if I think of it, if it comes back to mind. Let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, If it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Paul is not writing off the possibility of participating in this venture. If it is fitting that I go also on this trip to Jerusalem then they will go with me. Remember that Paul is wrapping up his instructions to the Corinthians. Not everything in our human communication is super exciting. Not everything in Paul's communication is super exciting. Sometimes there's just stuff about logistics that makes it into the letters. Not everything in human communication is powerful, poetic, or artistic. Imagine that you write a heartfelt letter to someone expressing your sincere appreciation for them, and you include words of encouragement and blessing, and then you conclude by mentioning your plans for Thanksgiving to come and visit them, and you include your flight information. That's not weird. This is what we do. That's, some, that's a little bit of what's going on here in this entire final section of this letter. I really wish I could remember what I was thinking of a few moments ago. I've also come to the end of my notes. We have not said much about Christ. We have not said a whole lot about the gospel. So let's do that right now. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand I'm not asking you for money. You can keep your money. That's not what this is about. But you need to know that no matter how much money you have and no, much how, no matter how much money you were to give, none of that is going to get you into heaven. The only way to get to heaven is to receive the gift of God's grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's something that you don't deserve. 
Being a good person won't get you in. Being super, super nice. Being a good citizen. Paying your taxes. Cutting your lawn. Keeping your life under control. None of that stuff will get you to heaven. The only way to get to heaven is by receiving the payment that Jesus made. In order to receive the payment that Jesus made, will you receive it by faith? But you're not going to receive that if you let your pride stand in the way. You're not going to receive that gift righteousness because Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and I. He lives a sinless life. He dies a substitutionary death, taking our place like a transaction, stepping in with the credit card like Trenton in the coffee. He says, no, I'm going to pay. And we say, okay, I'll take your payment. And then he dies as part of that payment. And then he rises from the dead. And so he's alive today. We have a living savior. We're not going to receive that gift. We're not going to receive that payment if we, allowed our, if we allow our pride to continue to stand in the way. In fact, this is one of the greatest things that prevents people from coming to Christ. It's their pride. It's their ego. It's the, oh, you might say, oh, I don't have pride, but I'm a good person. I don't, I don't really need Jesus. Yeah, that's pride. So what has to happen then is this humbling to recognize your sinfulness, to recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, and that you can't pay this on your own. And you actually have the wrong kind of currency. You're going to get up to the counter and you're going to open up your wallet and you'll find that your wallet's actually filled with Monopoly money. And the the dude at the counter is like, we don't take that kind of currency here. Oh, well, let me, let me, and you start digging through and it's like, nope, don't take that either. Or that, or that, or that, or that, or that. We don't take any of that currency. You need a different kind. And Jesus steps in and says, I'll pay. And then you swallow your pride, humble yourself, and you say, thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we have considered this subject of giving here in this passage, these verses at the end of our text. I thank you for the way you gave so freely. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. That heaven's riches, the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that that vault was opened up in order to pay the sin debts that we owed, in order to reconcile a world of lost sinners. We thank you that you call us to come to you by faith and to receive this gift. And that we live our lives in gratitude for the grace that we have received. And so we give others grace. Even impacting our wallets and our budgets. We are people who are channels of blessing and channels of grace and channels of giving. Particularly to other Christians. Lord, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. 
for the instruction that you gave to the church in Corinth and the way that it is instructive for us as well. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.